Are you an adventurer looking to take your hunt to the next level? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. Hey everyone, welcome back. And if this is your first time listening, welcome to the East Meets West Hunt podcast presented by Onyx. So what I want to talk about today in regards to Onyx is a specific layer under their trails and rec called Motor Vehicle Roads and Trails. So what this does is Onyx hosted roads and trail data from the United States Forest Service and their motor vehicle use maps showing which types of vehicles are allowed on each trail. And this layer is available for off-grid use. So what's cool about that is, is say you're going to hunt an area, you know, whether that be out west or that be in, you know, Pennsylvania, you can see any of these trails that are open to, say, ATVs or side-by-sides. And it even gives the details of, you know, uh, off-road vehicles less than 50 inches. So most likely going to be ATVs or smaller side-by-sides or ones that are open to, you know, regular vehicles and also even to motorcycles and and dirt bikes so what that does is help you you know one see if you're able to take you know one of those out if you have them to help aid in your hunting or two if you're on foot maybe avoid those areas that you know that other people have a little bit of an advantage to so i I like to use that layer as well as you know in pennsylvania specific there's a a layer that shows all the Pennsylvania deer hunting roads. So in Pennsylvania, we have roads that are open certain times of the year during hunting season, and they're gated the rest of the year. So if you're going to scout a spot and the gates close, you think you're getting way back in, hiking into the spot, scouting, and there's nobody there, and then you come hunting season, all of a sudden that gate's open. This This knowledge can be really helpful to know ahead of time so you know what you're getting into. So that, amongst many other layers, uh, are a part of Onyx Hunt app that uh, you can get at 20% off by using the code EMW. Check out more at onyxmaps.com. In addition, Maven Optics. So I want to talk about Maven C-Series binoculars. So this is our mid-level binoculars, and don't let that fool you. They're still a really great, high-quality optic. So it's like a dynamic mid-range binocular that it's a good companion to their B-series, which is their, you know, their highest um, quality ones. Just like the, the dependable, you know, like your pickup truck, this workhorse of a glass just gets the job done. It's, you know, powerful, but has a well-balanced, lightweight polymer frame and also extra low dispersion glass, so ED glass. And the multi-coated lenses are exceptionally clear and bright and good in low light they still come with the full warranty and so there's a no fault warranty on any of maven's glass so that can be really helpful especially if you're like me and you're really hard on your gear or you know sometimes just clumsy so if you want to check out maven optics go to mavenbuilt.com use the code east meets west dash gift to save yourself well what you'll get is a free gift and uh, that gift could be really anything and it could be anything from a couple stickers to now gene bottle or you know a shirt anything in between it's kind of a, a mystery gift there 
So in addition to that, the University of Elk Hunting and Corey Jacobson and Elk 101 have put together the most fully comprehensive elk hunting course available. You know, it's getting to that time where it's a little bit, you know, close to be using that for this hunting season, but it's never too late to, you know, start or too early, I guess, to get ready for the following year. And in addition to that, Corey is going to be launching the second series, the version two of Destination Elk on their YouTube channel. If you go to their YouTube and watch the one from 2018, it's a day-by-day series of their hunts all through September in different states. And what's really cool about their series is they break down why they're doing certain things. And it's, you know, a very educational piece as well. So if you're interested in the University of Elk Hunting, uh, you can use the coupon code East Meets West to save yourself 20% off of the online course. And lastly, Heather's Choice. So Heather has come out with the highest quality meal options available from breakfast to snacks to entrees that are just gluten-free, high-fat, high-protein, high-calorie fuel for your body. And that's what food is. It's it's fuel for you, especially in the backcountry. Or, you know, I like the little packroom snacks in the tree stands here in, in Pennsylvania as well. Keeps you fueled without having to pack in a whole lot of stuff. So if you want to check out Heather's Choice, you can go to heatherschoice.com. Use the code East Meets West to grab free shipping on any orders over $99. And just uh, to give you a heads up, all this information on the 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 partners is on the partners page on the website. So if you go to eastmeetswesthunt.com, click on the tab that says partners, and all the information is listed there as well. So you can find that. So on today's podcast, I have Josh Boyd coming on and we're going to talk once again about elk hunting, but this podcast is a little bit different where, you know, Josh and I go into some topics. We wanted to cover some things that aren't talked about a whole lot on any podcast and in especially haven't been talked about on mine. So we're going to talk about, you know, the differences with, you know, hunting, you know, in wet years versus dry years, we're going to talk about hunting in, you know, in, in different terrains, different elevations, go into packing meat and the whole process of, you know, once you have an elk down, butchering it and completely getting it out of the mountains, you know, on your own. And so we're really trying to, you know, cover some of these different avenues. And I really think the meat care part of it was a, a huge part of this podcast and and uh, will really help out a lot of people. I, I know it helped me out with, you know, making sure your coolers are prepared prior to getting in there, whether you have, you know, a Yeti or Ryan or, a, or if you have a, you know, Walmart Igloo, whatever it is, I th- really think that this will this will really help you out. So... Like I said, Josh Boyd, he's from Northwest Montana. I've had him on the podcast here before. He's a great resource of information, has been, you know, hunting for quite a while. So check out this episode and, you know, let me know what you think. And I always encourage feedback, whether that's positive or negative. And if you do like it, head over to iTunes and give it a rating and review. That helps out so much for me in the podcast so definitely check that out and just one last note as you know i'm 
two weeks out from leaving for you know my elk hunt in idaho and i have a mule deer tag as well but then i'm going to transition into some hardcore mountain buck stuff so i know a lot of listeners are interested in in that you know aspect and hunting whitetails and you know big timber big forest some gnarly terrain that we have all through the east coast and the appalachian mountains so that's going to be a big focus and i'm really pumped to get into that because that's you know that's my bread and butter that's what i grew up doing so I'm, I'm really excited to, to, you know, dive a lot deeper this year into, you know, talking about some of these things and getting ready for the, the whitetail season as well. So uh, let's get into the podcast here with Josh Boyd. All right, we're back for another episode of the East Meets West Hunt Podcast. And I have a guest returning here for the second time this year, Josh Boyd. What's going on, man? Oh, just uh, getting ready for the upcoming month of September. It's right, right around the corner. Yeah, yeah. We're only about what, just a little over a week out from September, and it's. We were talking before we got on here. It's just flying by. Yeah, it is. It's. Uh, oh, and the crazy thing is, like right now, there's some states that are starting. Like Utah is open for elk right now. It's been open for almost a week. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they're full into it right now for elk and archery, but Montana start, Montana starts the seventh this year. And then, um, I'm, I'm headed to Wyoming. It starts on the first, but I'm not heading down there till the 13th. Okay. So, so you'll get about a, you know, a week or about, about a week in Montana before you head down there then. Yeah, I'll I'll hunt that opening weekend and extend the weekend out a little bit to maybe I might do like a five day trip. Mm-hmm. And it's when I'm hunting in Montana, I always try to do like a backpack style hunt, um, and then I'll come back and re, re kind of recoup, resupply, put in a couple more days of work, and then I'll probably be gone for the rest of the month. Yeah, that's that's not too bad. So did you uh you drew a tag in Wyoming then this year? I did, yes. It's uh it's a general elk, but you know, those are becoming fairly highly sought after, it seems like. Uh it took several preference points to to pull that tag. And that's in the the uh the regular general. The the odds are a little better if you fork over money for the higher dollar tag um i think it took last year maybe one and a half or two points to draw that this year might have been two points for the special general but the regular general took three huh so, yeah what is it like an extra like 700 bucks or something like that yeah, he, it's something crazy it's, yeah it might be another 600 it almost doubled it but not quite yeah but yeah it's it's a chunk of change and you know, if guys, it increases your odds considerably. If you and if you want to hunt it, Wyoming, more often than not, it's probably a good strategy. Yeah, and so what what we're talking about is there's there's two different ways of applying in Wyoming. And correct me if I'm wrong, Josh. I haven't applied for it, but there's the uh, the general and the special general draw. If, if those terms are right, but basically, if you pay more for the one, you have better odds. Is that kind of a quick and easy way to explain it? Yep. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah. 
Yeah. So it, it just takes fewer, fewer preference points to, to get that special general. Okay. And, uh, the, the regular general, it takes like a little, little more points. You got to wait a little longer to yeah. accumulate those points to draw it. So, you know, I, uh, I just bought my first point in Wyoming this, this year and I had, I, everyone was basically kicking me in the ass about it. I had a deer point there and for some reason last year I didn't buy an elk point and, and, uh, talking to some people they're like you should you should definitely consider getting a couple points there <laughs> you know and then yeah. applying for a general hunt yeah the nice thing with wyoming is that they do allow you to buy just straight up buy the point for i th- want to say it's fifty dollars yeah it is and yep. and um you can you can buy them up to i think maybe don't quote me on it's in october i think it's the end of october you're allowed to buy a point for the fault for the next year's draw yep so october 31st and, yep yeah so if people want to get a point they still can yeah um but yeah you got to start start somewhere if you don't have any just buying one for 50 bucks is it's not i mean if you need three points to draw a regular general it's not that much extra money so yeah and I guess the way I figured it is like for me personally, next year I'll be hunting Alaska in September, most likely for caribou. So I don't know if I'll get an elk hunt in and I'm like, that'll give me two points there. And, you know, and as you kind of, as you go through, I'll be gaining some points and also building in other States too. So, you know, in the next few years, I should start to actually draw a couple tags maybe. Nice. So. Yeah. Yeah. I, I consider it an investment in fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a good way of putting it. Is that is that how you have to explain it to the family? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I usually don't have to explain a whole lot, but yeah, it's uh that's a good way to put it. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. So, uh Josh, you're uh, up in northwestern Montana is where you call home. And if anyone yeah. uh wants to know a little bit more about Josh's background specifically, the the first podcast we did about mountain whitetails, he really dove into, you know, some um, you know, his work life and everything else. So, you work in the woods in the mountains basically every day, correct? Yeah, it's I'm outside. You know, probably I'd say you know, 80% of my, of my time spent at work, um, more, more in the summer, spring, summer, fall than winter, but I'm still out a fair bit in the winter, but yeah, I'm out, out in the mountains in the, in the river channels, small stream channels, headwater basins, all, all summer, spring, summer, and fall working. Um, in the feet, I work in the field of hydrology, so it's, it's, uh, it's a good excuse to get out and about, yeah. <laughs> look at some stuff. Yeah. So how's the, how's the weather been there this year so far? Um, you know, it's been a really mild summer. We had a, we had a late spring. We had decent snowpack. It wasn't extremely deep snow like it was in the rest of the West. We, we were a little anomaly in this part of the world. The, uh, in the Northwest corner, we were a little low on the snowpack, but uh, we seemed like we kind of made up for it with just the slow melt off and lots of spring and summer rain. It's been a really cool summer. So everything here is really still relatively green. Um, we've been getting just enough moisture coming through. 
and to keep the fires down we haven't had any smoke out here at all um this year so the fires must not be um doing a whole lot elsewhere in the country to the to the west of us a lot of times we'll get smoke from washington oregon so i'm i'm assuming that they're kind of in similar situation but here in in western montana north idaho um it's pretty it's fairly lush still so way different than the last few years that we've that we've experienced yeah I, I remember the last time we talked it was in the it was in the winter but we were talking about the previous year a little bit and and how dry it was compared to what we're experiencing this year yeah i i would say let's see like the summer of 2015 was one of our driest on record um we had the lowest snowpack probably on record the in some of the sites that i measure and some of those data uh data set go back to like uh 1929 i believe so we had some of the lowest measurements for snowpack in 2015 and then we had really hot dry weather that summer uh 2016 was a little more normal 2017 again was a super droughty year lots of lots of trees were just dying of drought especially the little the little fir trees that were growing in like around like bedrock outcrops and stuff, you'll see them turning orange and dying just from the lack of moisture. Um, but in 18, 18 was pretty dry as well. I mean, it wasn't a great, a great wet year. So, and we had a fairly warm summer, but this year was definitely on the cooler side, way more wet. So it's going to be, it's going to be a different scenario out there in the elk woods, I think this year than like the last say four what does that what does that change as far as when it comes to elk hunting as far as i'm sure like the food sources and everything a little bit but can you kind of explain a little bit of what the the wet years will bring for you and how you change a little bit yeah so um so the wet delayed uh so like the big snowpacks um they typically melt off later in the spring. So the green up occurs a little later. Um, so a lot of times those elk won't, they don't migrate back up to their, the tops of the mountains until a little later in the season. Um, so they're, they're, it's kind of, they're just a little bit of a lag before they get up there. So they're, they haven't spent as much time up on top. And so they haven't like eaten a lot of their preferred food. So there's just, abundant food up high for them usually in these big wet years um and also when you get the rains coming through it keeps things continually wet and continually growing and not drying out and the nutrition is available in in their in their forage up there so the wetter years it tends to uh scatter them a little more um another thing that kind of concentrates them on a drier year would be um water so yeah. Now there's in a wet year there's there's more available water as well. So they're a little more spread out. Um and they're just a little a little harder to find sometimes. Just takes a little more hiking. Sometimes you got to climb up the mountain another couple thousand feet or you know a thousand feet. Um so yeah, the wet years are great I think for um herd health and raising those calves 
um, just because it's just so much abundant food. Makes it a little harder on the predators to find them and eat them. Include, and that goes for us yeah, as well. I was just going to say, including yeah. hunters. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So um, I think I've noticed that these tend to be a little more scattered around when it's wet. So you have to cover a little bit more country um, and just pay attention to the sign that you're seeing out there on the landscape. Um, some of it might be kind of old and they've just moved, you know, even further up the mountain. Um, and so you just kind of have to poke around until you find some, some good quality, fresh sign and um, find what they prefer. Yeah. But once you, I mean, that's the nice thing. Once you find them, you usually you can stick with them. Okay. Um, but with with you though, where you're hunting at specifically in Montana, it's pretty thick. So are you able to do much glassing at all? No, it's not. This isn't really a great glassing area. Other parts of the state are decent. Mm-hmm. You can glass a lot of stuff here. It's, I mean, it's so thick and so brushy. You, I mean, there's openings you'll see them in. You might see them in a clear cut or avalanche chute or you know, um, just a big brush field on the opposite hillside. That helps for sure. Definitely. I mean, there's a lot of people I know say they don't really pack binoculars with them when they're bow hunting for elk, but uh, there's enough to look around at that. I, I always have a set of binocs with me. Um, but I'm not a diehard elk glasser. Like a lot of guys in the desert Southwest are, or even on the East side of Montana, there's a lot of guys that will just climb up on a knob and, and just glass and glass and glass and then find where they're moving to and, and intercept them. Mm-hmm. Kind of, so up here, it's, it's uh, hey, you can see them, but you're not going to go stalk over there and sneak in on one. Yeah. You know, just because you saw one in a brush field, that's not going to happen. Um, you might get lucky and it could happen, but boy, the chances are, are low. So it's a, for me, it's a, it's a calling game for sure in the in the big big woods big mountains up here um i'll just find a receptive bull and try to call him in yeah um but you know that's another thing that it seems to me that i found uh, it could be just specific to the the part of the the state that i live in but it seems like when it's really wet and there's lots of food available it uh, it seems like the rut's not as intense um, and I don't know if it's because the elk aren't like concentrated in those, those, uh, hot food sources and hot little water holes. Um, and they're all packed together and they get all antsy and get each other all worked up and they're more vocal or it's just the weather just sort of makes them a little more mellow and it just doesn't seem to be as intense hmm. overall. You can have some really intense days, you know on any year, but it seems like I have, I have better luck when it's hot and dry. Wow. Then- uh, especially have, especially calling bulls in, in the like sp- midday, how you can get some bulls just cranking in the middle of the day. That's interesting. And, and it's kind of yeah, almost uh, different from, you know, I guess I never asked these questions before, but, you know, when I'd talk to some other people like, oh, it's a wet year and mostly they refer that to antler growth and, you know, herd health and stuff, but haven't dug into the actual specifics 
of that. And I, I mean, it makes sense. There's water everywhere. There's food everywhere, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, it seems like they can be more mobile at times mm-hmm. and they, yeah, they just, it seems they might not bump into other competitive bulls. And so they can just kind of be more spread out, I guess, across the landscape spatially. So, um, so I, I mean, not, it's, it's still going to be good. It's still going to be fun, mm-hmm. but I'll be curious to see what the, what September turns into. I you, typically I've, I look into the long-term forecast that the weather service kicks out. They'll get a prediction one, one month out, two months out, three months out. I haven't looked. I want to say the last time I looked was like late June and they were predict predicting a fairly, a fairly warm September, warm and dry September. Hmm. So the effects of, uh, the water and the food sources could be diminished by the time September rolls around. Um, it's kind of hard to say, it's hard to predict that, but if that holds true, it's, it could be a a pretty good, pretty good rut this year. Okay. Well that's, yeah, that's interesting. And I'll be, you know, interested to see as far as like, you're talking about them going higher, you know, going up for those green food sources and everything a little bit higher up on the mountain. Do, do you see them, do they stay there through all of September normally? Does that de- depend on, you know, different outliers or when do they start kind of moving back down? Um, I, it, it, it really does depend. I mean, that's, I mean, no, that's a weasel, weasel answer, but it really does <laughs> depend on the weather. The, if you get a, a really early hard frost, sometimes it could kill off their preferred food at that time. And they'll just completely switch over to something different, which is growing on a, at a, either a different elevation or a different aspect on the mountain. And so they might drop down in elevation a little bit or, or sometimes they'll, they'll be in these pockets these really deep, dark basins that are kind of cold sinks, you know, a lot of the cold air will sink in there and they'll get a really hard frost in those pockets and it'll kill off a lot of their really highly valuable, highly nutritious forbs in there. And when those are done, then they might migrate up a little bit onto the slopes that didn't get frost killed. Um, but if it stays wet, doesn't freeze, you know, things kind of stay fairly static for, you know, a couple of weeks, it seems like, especially around that peak of the rut, but it seems like that really hot or that really hard, cold frost can, can change what they prefer to eat. Yeah. And no, I kind of figured that was uh, going to be your answer with it. Cause it seems like elk would do what elk, elk want to do. And each area is so different, you know, depending on, uh, you know, so many different outliers. And again, this is just me from looking at it kind of from an outside perspective. I haven't had enough experience to, to be able to correlate anything, but that's, that's interesting. And, um, so with, with that, like, so you're, when you're going to be going to locate the elk this year with being a little wetter and everything, are you going to, let, let's, let's jump over to Wyoming. Cause have you been to this spot before? Or is it brand new to you? This is all brand new. Yeah. Okay. So what, what does it look like for you going into this spot brand new? Like, what are you doing to go in there and locate the elk? 
Um, so where we're headed, it's going to be kind of Western Wyoming. It's broken country, big mountains, fairly large drainages. There's a lot of open ground in there. I will definitely be glassing a lot. I will like, what I like to do is pick, you know, once I kind of narrow in and on an area that I want to hunt, I will identify some major high spots with some decent vantage points and I'll climb to the top of the highest high spot and plunk my butt down and glass everything around me just to get an idea of what's moving where. And there's a lot of times I'll see something four miles away. It's like, Oh, there's elk over there and plan, plan to go hunt those maybe another day just pack up and head that way. But, um, so my plan is to get there I want to be mobile. I'm going to have a mobile camp at my truck. Uh, a couple of friends are heading down there with me. So we're all going to be kind of in the same situation. We're going to be set up to, to have a base camp set up sort of maybe at the truck or close to the truck, but also we're set to go backpack in and bivy hunt, you know, for four to five nights, mm-hmm. maybe come back out, re- reset or relocate if something happens, something's not going according to plan, you know, we, we run into a dead end or predators move into the basin or something like that. So we can, we can reset or relocate and, um, cruise down the road and go to site number plan B site number two or three or whatever it happens to be. So, um, I try to stay, light on my feet, light on my camp, base camp as well. I don't pull a trailer. I don't pull a camper. I just tent camp out of the back of my truck. You know, I have all the amenities that can slide in and out of the back and I can roll, roll out in the dark if I need be and, and relocate mm-hmm. and take off. So that's going to be kind of my plan is to stay light, um, glass, and then, go hunt deep if I have to. I don't necessarily have to hunt deep if they're not deep. Um, and I just kind of roll with the punches. I, I, I try to be super flexible. Yeah. Cause there's always, there's always elk. I mean, there could be elk even where I live here in Montana, there's, there's elk, you know, within a half a mile of my house and I live down the Valley bottom. So I don't have to go climb up to the top of the mountain and be five miles in. I just prefer to hunt that way. Yeah. But it sounds like this place is going to be, yeah, the, the hunting pressure is going to be moderate, not going to be, you know, super crazy. Um, but you never know. I'll just kind of roll with the punches, I guess. Yeah. So like, do when you're like, when you were scouting ahead of time, do you have like, you know, a bunch of different areas kind of picked out for that. Like, all right, you know, maybe there's more pressure than you expected near the roads and you're going to have to go back in. Then, you know, you already have that kind of ahead of time planned, like that this is, you know, scouted. So you have like somewhat of an idea. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have, I'll have like base camps, car camps kind of pre-located. Like, okay, if we're going to hunt this, basin system or this drainage system we could you know park trucks here camp here we could do a quick little day trip in there to explore it and if it doesn't really pan out we'll bump over to site number two camp there kind of do the same thing but if site number one 
is you know full of full of critters, then it's and and if we think it's necessary to backpack in, then we definitely will. Yeah. Yep, I understand. And with the the base camp thing, so that's you know that's kind of the strategy that that I'm looking at this year is mostly truck camping, but having the ability to go in if we need to. You know, again, same thing depending on the scenario. I just and again just learning from the last couple of years like i would just find an area and i'd backpack in right off the bat and you know and there wouldn't you know if there was an elk there or say that we blew him out of that that spot then you know it took a little bit to to go back and regroup and i'm just going to be more organized and ready to go and, and kind of move you know as needed and the, the problem i'm running into right now is and actually meeting with the guys i'm going with this weekend is trying to figure out how i'm gonna fit everything in my truck for three guys yeah you know and we're like i i, I literally looked up you know u-hauls areas in in the area just saying we all three of us end up tagging out which is a good problem to have but we're gonna need to get a trailer to go home because there's <laughs> we're gonna be packed to the roof of my cap of my truck before even getting mm-hmm. anything you know <laughs> yeah yep well, hopefully you're full of antlers and meat on the way out of there yeah, we That'd said that's awesome. a that's a good problem to have. If you're trying to figure out how to fit all the meat and antlers in your truck, I think that's something I'm I'm hoping <laughs> is uh the problem. Yes. Yeah. Yes it is. So <laughs> no, that's uh so that that's that's cool to hear that that's kind of your style with it and 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 you and I had talked a little bit and the area that I'm going to is similar with some more open country that I'm used to and that was kind of the the strategy is trying to find some of them high points and glassing and then, you know, hopefully locating them and, and going from there. So what if you, you know, once you locate elk or say you find a bull that you want to go after, I'm not, you know, sure what your goals are with it as far as if you're going for a certain size, you're going for or whatever, but what's your stra- your strategy look like once you find the elk to actually go in and, and kill them? Um, so yeah, it's going to be definitely all spotting and stock stock hunting for bulls. It works fairly well. Um, I don't have the, a ton of experience doing it. I mean, I've done it a few times over kind of in central Montana where I used to spend a lot more of my elk season. Um, and so it definitely works. It works well, especially for big bulls. But I'd like to call, I like to call it elk. So, um, you know, find, find a bull that's receptive and, and try to call him in. Mm-hmm. And usually there's, when you find a, a little herd of elk, there's, a, there's usually more than one bull around. So goal is get in on them, call them, shoot them, pack them out, <laughs> get them in the meat locker. <laughs> that's simple. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, if they don't, if they're not responsive, then yeah, we're definitely going to be um, flexible in our strategies as well. Sitting over water, it works really well in certain areas. In certain years, it'll work. I just don't have a lot of patience for it. I like to cruise. I like to cover country. Part of part of the fun of hunting for me is exploring new ground. It's the adventure of it. And you're not exploring new ground if you're sitting in a tree stand over a water hole or sitting in a ground blind. Uh, it's just, it's, to me, it's just monotonous and it's not as much fun. So I would rather spend my time 
looking over new country, hiking through new country, cruising ridges, trying to get a bull to respond or, or finding some vocal elk. If they're, you know, if they just bugle on their own, that's awesome. Um, so we'll definitely be flexible, but probably fallback plan would be interception or spot and stock kind of a deal. Or a lot of times, you know, spot stock and then call, you know, you can, if you can sneak in on them really dang close and then make a few little subtle squeaks, you can, you can get them right in your lap with very little effort. When, so the, the, I guess my question would be is when you're going to move in, say even a call on them, are you waiting until they get into the timber to bed? Um, man, it, it kind of depends if it's early in the morning and they're moving towards their bedding area. No, I will definitely harass them. I'll harass them all the way to their bedding area mm-hmm. if possible. Um, very carefully. Yeah. I definitely don't want to blow them out of there. You know, once you locate them and there's definitely a bowl or two around that you really would like to hang your tag on, you don't want to blow them out of the country. I don't know how with these Wyoming elk, I'm not a hundred percent sure how far they would move. If you did that, um, I've, I've bumped elk that don't go all that far in certain areas, but other places they just still, still locate to the next County. So I want to be careful not to bump them. And if everything looks good and I know where they're bedded, I will, I will hunt the bedding area very carefully, very selective. If the wind's really, really steady, really calm, and I've got it in my advantage to, or in, in my favor, I will, um, I'll try to call a bull out of his bedding area. Um, if there, he has a ton of cows and a small patch of timber, maybe not sneaking in there, getting close enough to call might not be the best idea without, you know, you might get busted or pinned down by a cow, but it could work really well. Or you could just pre-position and try to ambush them when they get up and, and head out in the afternoon or evening. Um, but yeah, bedding areas are tricky because you can get a bull in your lap in just a matter of a minute or you can blow the whole herd over the mountaintop, you know, yeah. you got to hike out and relocate five miles away. Yeah. Okay. Um, that That's kind of what I was, I was wondering. So like your preferred method is, you know, you see them and you're moving right then after you, you spot them. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I try to figure out what, what they're doing, where they're going what their next move is and then try to intercept them a little bit and kind of get pre-positioned. Um, but if like, if they're, if it's early in the morning, that's, that's a great opportunity to, to get a bull to come. I think they, they seem to be, you know, active and they're still excited from that night where they were out romping around chasing cows and there were other bulls are bugling and they're just a little bit more of a frenzy, versus uh well middle of the day is good too though i mean it's hard to it's hard to compare the two because i've had i've had some midday hunts that are just unreal where a bull just would not he, he'd go to bed but he just wouldn't stop bugling and i just would sneak in i've done it several times i snuck in a couple of little subtle calls and just either get him cut getting up looking for that lost cow and if he doesn't really respond then I'll challenge them with a bugle and they'll just come running in. I've some of my best bulls I've killed in the middle of the day Hmm. after they, after I've kind of 
got them out of their bed and they've gotten worked up after their cows have been bedded down. Yeah. Okay. And so that makes sense. Yeah, no, it definitely does. When, so when you're going in uh, as far as let's, let's talk about like your, your bivy camp setups and everything are, do you have like a certain type of train you're looking to set up camp in? Um, are you trying to be lower than where you perceive the elk are going to be or where you're going to glass, you're going to camp right up on the ridge, you know, what, what's that kind of look like? Yeah. Uh, so when I'm bivy hunting, backpack hunting, I am typically just so the, your listeners kind of are on the same page as I am. I, I mean, when I say bivy hunting, that means I am packing up camp and I'm taking it with me every day. So I'm not leaving my camp in a, in a spot. I would consider that more of a spike camp or maybe even a base camp if you're coming back to that thing for, you know, four or five days. Mm-hmm. So when I'm bivy hunting, I'm mobile and I'm just following the nomadic herds. So middle of the day, I'm just kind of hanging out with my full pack on, waiting for the move for the evening. If I don't have an evening play, then I will back off and I'll throw up camp and kind of get situated for the evening and the next morning. But I, I'm doing it in a way where it's kind of that fine edge. You kind of have to walk There's this little razor's edge. It's like, you want to be close to the elk so you can hear what they're doing at night, but you don't want to be so close that they're going to bump into your camp and get buggered in the middle of the night, or you don't want them to end up feeding you know, down slope of you, which they're going to catch your down slope wind and, and know that you're there in the middle of the night and blow them out. But you also kind of want to be fairly close so you can keep tabs on them. Mm-hmm. So I try to pick a spot that has, that's, I don't know, sometimes it's tough. Sometimes you're just sleeping in a tiny little mule deer bed on the side of a hill. But a lot of times you can back off, get up, find a little bench or, a little flat spot on top of a ridge. I try not to go down into the creek bottoms if possible, just because they tend to be cold and wet and they're, they're also noisy. Um, with the creek babbling next to you, sometimes you can't hear a lot what's going on. Cause I, that's one of the things I like. I'll try to be really quiet around camp. Not a lot of, you know, banter back and forth. If you have a partner with you, Cause I like to listen and hear what's going on and you can hear bulls potentially that you might not have heard if you're flapping your gums with your buddy playing Farkle, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, it. it's in funny camp. how you say that because, uh, I remember the first year when I backpacked into the spot and it wasn't out of really any knowledge, but I'd, I had camped on this ridge, but I camped kind of off the side a little bit, kind of down on the first bench. And I was hearing bugles all night from the opposite down in the little, like it was like a little uh, drainage, like a smaller one that was steep. But if maybe if we were camped on that side of the the ridge, then our, you know, the downwind drafts, the thermals might've blew them out. I don't know, but we were camped on the opposite side, which helped. And we heard them all night bugling and then we moved a couple days um later we and we ran out of light we were down in like kind of a, a creek bottom and some dark timber and set up there and you're right it, you couldn't hear a thing down there it was it was terrible because you, you, we were too yeah. close to the 
to the creek and it was not not ideal whatsoever um from that standpoint but again i guess that's all all learning yeah and not only that is it, it it's also like that's where the heaviest dews occur dews and frosts occur at night so you wake up in the morning and everything's covered in a heavy dew and it's wet it's, I don't know. And, and if you want to pack your shelter up in the, you know, in the dark before you head off and that, that morning and everything's soaking wet, it's just, it's not ideal. I mean, I will do it. Don't get me wrong. If I, I would camp in a Creek bottom to keep elk from smelling me every time, if that was my only option, but I'd prefer to be up out of the Creek bottom or out of those basins. Um, just because of the fact that they do they're just, yeah, they're just not the best camping spots. Yeah. Okay. So, um, the ridge tops are t- typically a little drier, but they can also be windier as well. And, and if they're really windy, you might not be able to hear bugles from the ridge tops either. So if you can camp off the leeward side of a ridge and you know, you can hear a little better as well. And plus you don't want to be skyline. If it's an open, open country, you don't want to have your big yellow tent stuck up on top of the big open ridge line where everything feeding out on the opposite hillside can look across and see that beacon glowing, you know, in the, in the late evening rays or even in the morning, if you're leaving your camp set up. So I try to be discreet as discreet as possible when I'm around, uh, elk and I'm camping kind of near, near them. Well, and, and it's funny because like when you see like people taking photos and everything of their tent set up, a lot of times they have them in these, you know, big open spots, probably more just for the picture <laughs> than anything. Right. I'm like, wow, that thing sticks out like a sore thumb. You know, that's that yeah. my thought. <laughs> yeah. There's nothing that'll ruin your hunt is better than like pitching your tent in the middle of the meadow where the elk want to come feed. <laughs> yeah. That's a, that's a surefire way to hear nothing in the morning when you get up. Well, and, and I'm sure it's location specific, but I remember when I had that one camp set up on the ridge and I moved up probably about 500 yards and set up a little higher, closer to tree line and the weather, the wind was so much worse up there in the middle of the night. That's when I learned about, uh, making sure to put rocks on my stakes because I had a floorless sh- floorless shelter and they all started pulling out in the middle of the night from a really bad storm. And that was something I did not, I do not want to experience again. I'm like holding down the corners of my tent with my body, you know, hoping I don't, don't, don't yep. lose it. Cause if you lose your shelter, you're, you're in some trouble. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yep. Yeah. It's a good way to, yeah, I'd rather not spend my nights. Yeah. Trying to, secure my gear yeah. as it's flowing around i i did buy uh four stakes so they're my I, i'm using one of those seek outside uh cimarron teepee shelters and when i have a couple guys staying in there and so for four of the stake points uh my brother actually got them for me uh one year they're like the the msr they're the longer ones that screw in kind of they're a little bit heavier yeah. they're still aluminum but man i feel so much more secure with that Yep. Yeah. The MSR stakes are awesome. Yeah. I know which one you're talking about. I can't remember the, the model name. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. They're, what are those called? But anyway, yeah, I, I have a Cimarron as well. Okay. And uh, I love that shelter. That thing is awesome. It is. I use it a lot. Do you, Especially if you've got a couple guys with you, 
or the weather's going to be kind of nasty. It's great. The the one year I packed a stove in with me and uh, did that, and man, was that nice having uh, the stove in there. Cause we got six inches of snow and it was cold and windy and just being able to, to run a little bit of heat in there. That was nice drying off your gear. I mean, you got to be careful with condensation inside the tent, but still it, it was pretty neat. Yep. Yeah. It is. They're awesome. Yep. I've got a little stove with mine as well. And yeah, I, I'll switch to that. I have used it in early September, especially if it's rainy. You know, up here in North Idaho and Western Montana, you know, we have so much brush, underbrush. You know, even if it rains three hours in the middle of the night and stops, you're still getting soaked in that brush. So it's nice to have a tent, teepee you can come back into at night, pull your wet pants off, pull your wet socks, get them somewhat dry. You can eat in there in a t-shirt when it's super cold out. They're amazing. I'm, I, I just can't say enough good things about about those shelters mm. i mean i used one last year in utah my utah elk hunt i was camping down there i went down like five days early to scout and uh it was cold high desert it was getting down to like the lowest it got down to when i was there was like three so it was <laughs> like i'd wake up in the morning and I'd look at the thermometer be like seven one day nine five three it's like what is going on now it's freezing and so that wood stove was just it was a necessity really for me yeah and your boots and drying out your boots in the morning you know we we would just wouldn't run the stove all night just you know when we get back warm up a little bit get in our sleeping bag yeah and then in the morning you know, just for even 20 minutes before you get up and get moving as you're cooking, you know, say breakfast or whatever, and getting your boots warmed up a little bit and making sure you don't put them too close, but just, you know, to, to dry them out a little bit because there's nothing worse than putting on a frozen boot. Oh, that, oh, I hear it. I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sucks. Yeah, because it never seems yep. to dry the whole day then. But yeah. Yeah, a little, I don't know if you ever use these. Um, I use these little tabs. Oh, I'm forgetting the name of them now. Um, they're like a little military surplus tab. Little SPIT tablets? Oh, no. Um, yeah, they're a little fire starter mm-hmm. that I use for trioxane, trioxane, I think is what they're called. Yep. You can get, you can buy a, you know, a case of them on amazon for bit next to nothing but man those things are awesome for starting a little fire in those stoves they just throw a half of a tab in there throw your kindling on top of it and just light it boom you've got instant fire yeah and like i i use those little they're called espit tablets they're white and they come in yeah. like uh, maybe 12 packs or something but i'll take a few of them with me and just throw one of them in there with the kindling and those light so good i mean it's worth having those with you for for that even mm-hmm. if you're even if you don't have a stove even just starting a fire they're just so much easier to get things rolling and uh and and one one thing one mistake i guess i made the, the first year i was taking a stove i overthought it too much and i was like oh i need an axe and i need you know all this stuff and i carried it all in and most of the time i'm not sure of everywhere but all the sticks were you know, dry enough, I was able to break them off and didn't need an ax or anything, you know? Right. Yeah. 
<laughs> yep. And those stoves, you can't burn really big chunks of wood anyway in them, it doesn't seem like. So, yeah. Yeah, cutting, cutting big logs to throw in there really isn't going to help you a whole lot. And when did you notice, I, I don't know about the country you were in, but when, when I was camping in Pennsylvania and, and it was really cold, it was down probably around 10 degrees, and I was burning a lot of like hemlocks and pine tree branches and stuff like that. Make sure if and it's cold like that, you have that, that damper wide open for most of it or close to being open because I had it where I started closing off, bring some heat and it plugged up and actually the stovepipe caught on fire in, inside. The, oh, in the, really? Yeah. Oh. And it back. So it did that. And then the whole inside of the tent filled up with smoke cause it plugged with the creosote basically. <laughs> and I wouldn't yeah. have woke up. I probably would have died. My brother was with me and he woke up twice and he's like, he goes, I shook you and you weren't waking up. I'm a pretty heavy sleeper, but, uh, the whole tent was filled with smoke and it wasn't a very, you know, good night sleeping. Oh, so I, yeah. I, I learned a little bit there as far as when you're burning some of that soft wood in cold temperatures, but, uh, it's just something yeah, you, you kind of learn. Open. Yep. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I guess I kind of got on a little bit of a, a tangent there, <laughs> switching from September to late. Oh, that's easy, that's easy to do. <laughs> uh, that's funny. But um, no, I'm, I'm glad to hear kind of your, your camp set up like that. That's that's interesting. And is that what you're using for bivy hunting too, or are you using a different tent? Uh, sometimes uh, I, I'll use that sometimes for bivy hunting. In the past, I've used just tarps occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um. I got like a Jimmy tarp. I've got one of the new Sitka tarps. I've pitched that before, but also this year I'm I'm going to use that uh, Stone Glacier Sky Air mm-hmm. Ultra tarp. It's like a little single, single person kind of a shape tarp. It's more of like a a trapezoid, and you pitch it with trekking poles. It's got like uh, I don't know if you're familiar with like the Kafaru Super tarps. Yep but it's similar in shape to that, maybe a little smaller. It's really lightweight, really packable. I mean, it's like with a little ground sheet, which is pretty sweet, by the way, the ground sheet's awesome. And if anybody's interested in picking up that shelter, definitely get the vestibule and get the ground sheet, but ground sheet, vestibule, tent body plus stakes. Um, it's like barely over a pound. I mean, really? it's definitely less than a, pound and a half yeah and it packs down to something i don't know size of a large grapefruit yeah something maybe a little bigger than maybe a little bigger than that but it's uh it's super compact which lightweight's great and all but compact is is ideal as well just because i i eat just volume and the more trim your pack is when you're cruising around with a full pack on your back the better things are going to be you don't want a giant pack sticking way above your head as you're crawling through the brush or the blowdown. Yeah. So Man, light, that, lightweight's great. Compactness is just as good. That's no, that's a so. good point. I mean, the, that's the only thing about that Cimarron shelter with the way that the TP part is on the top and the stovepipe port, it doesn't pack down as small as, you know, you right. probably like with it. It's not terrible or anything, but that's huh. Right. That's that's interesting. I, I've looked into the tarp setups and just haven't haven't pulled the trigger. I almost bought one last year and, and I just saw that Stone Glacier one on, on Go Hunt's website. They put it up in their, their gear shop and I was just checking it out and, and that's 
that seems like a pretty legit setup. Yeah. I mean, tarps, they're not for everyone. I mean, you, you kind of have to have a little bit of an advanced skill set to, to run them into the colder seasons, colder, wetter seasons. Um, and also they're not for every season either. I mean, it's, that's just straight up the way it, it is. It's, there's trade-offs for that lightweight packability, and it's it's a it's a more mild weather, not super windy country, fairly dry, occasional rain, but um, it's a it's a pretty versatile shelter for September, I think, in most places in the West. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't take it to Alaska. Yeah. Um, it's just not going to hold up on the, in any high winds or just, you know, three days of solid rain. I would not want to be in that thing, <laughs> but it's, uh, I took it, I took it up to British Columbia this summer in uh, late July, early August. I was up there for two weeks on a, like a backcountry canoe trip and it rained almost every day there. And I slept in that thing a few times and it did great. So it will handle some weather. And then we had some uh, really windy night too one night and it just pounded us and that thing, it held up pretty, pretty well. Huh. That's, that's interesting. Like you said, I've never, never did that. And like, and like you said about like shelters are different for everyone. Like, I mean, I tried one of those, uh, Nemo spike storm, one person tents, really small, compact, you know, lightweight, set it up with trekking poles and, and and basically an arrow shaft on the front and it wasn't for me like it's a nice tent and i know a lot of people really like them and but for me i just felt claustrophobic in it you know and that's where i thought maybe like a tarp would be better because you're you know more open in it where the that tent was just too tight for me and that's again all personal preference like i mean i was talking to brady miller who's about eight inches taller than me and he's using the same one and he loves it you know he liked it a lot and i just does he really yeah i couldn't get used to it yeah (laughs) that's funny yeah yeah i I know i know brady and he's he's built of uh he's just got uh a different mental state than a lot of people that guy like I've looked at his early season meal deer meal plans and it's like it's all like cold food. Yeah. And if I remember right. It it's is like protein shakes and stuff like that. Like, man, I need a little bit more comfort than that. <laughs> yeah. So, but like you said, you know it's all it's all what you're into and all what you're willing to sacrifice. So um and some people that's just not a big deal. It's like, oh why would you even have a concern about that? Yeah, that's that. That's the same they, thing. They, with just, they just roll with it. The the food thing. I looked at his list and and the same thing. I'm like, man, that would be great. You know, not carrying a stove, but wow, like that's rough for that many days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I know Kurt Roscoe um, of Stone Glacier. Do you know Do you know Kurt at all? No, I don't. Uh, he's he's just diehard, just savage, and I I. I heard him on another podcast talking about how he just like he'll just like pour water into his mountain house, cold water into his mountain house in the morning. And then just that way it's ready. It's hydrated by dinner time. Uh-huh. So he doesn't have to heat up water. So he's just in cold mountain house. Uh-huh. Always, you know, solo hunting sheep in the, 
in the uh, absorties. You know, no, because like, <laughs> for me, that would be, yeah. especially doing something like that, a sheep hunt where it's already, you know, so taxing on your body and stuff. A little <laughs> bit of comfort of a warm meal makes me feel so much better. Yeah. Yeah. But I've, I've had some, some pretty pretty decent conversations with Kurt and he's he's just cut from a different cloth as well he's just one of those guys that yeah it's it's not suffering to him it's just normal every day this is what you do yeah kind of a deal huh so and so I would say I would say if you're that way if you have that personality the tarp setup is is uh might be the way to go for you (laughs) yeah that's it like and and I guess that's where it comes to you know practicing with it and i guess it sometimes it'll take a little bit of investment to figure out what you want and what you need but if something doesn't work out you can always resell it too that's right yeah no absolutely there's always a market for it someone someone will jump on and snatch it up i know the classifieds on rock slide it's just full of shelters and backpacking gear that people just aren't into using or don't need anymore or whatever. So that's another route. If you, if you want to try it, you can maybe get into it a little cheaper by buying something used, lightly used somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And rock slide is definitely the best place that I've found for used gear that you can get quality stuff. And there's a good selection on there from people, you know, posting up yeah, stuff. Yeah. And- yep. If you want backpacking or backcountry type of gear, definitely. Um, I would say check out rock slide in the classified section. Cool. And so Josh, one, one, uh, a little bit of a different route here that I wanted to kind of dive into here with you is when it comes to, you have a bull down and you're, you know, you got that, you took your photos with it. Everything's good to go. Now what's, what's it look like when it comes to, you know, your meat care and, you know, meat packing. So is there any steps that you're taking, you know, off the bat to, to make sure that everything's good. Yeah. So in my mind, that's the most important, one of the most important things we do as hunters is take care of our meat, especially elk meat. I mean, it's just incredible. So, um, and it seems like if you're willing to spend the time and want to work a little bit harder at keeping things clean, it's just, everything's going to be easier in the long run. Um, and it's just going to taste better too. You're going to be more apt to, to pull it out of the freezer, you know, late, late in the winter and, and thaw it out and cook it up with some pride. So that starts, like you said, right after you kill one, um, elk, sometimes they die where it's flat and open and grassy. And that's awesome. I mean, count yourself lucky that, that that happened and, and take it all in because the chances of it happening again are pretty slim. <laughs> they tend to die. They tend to die in some nasty, dark brush hole, blow down, steep mountainside. At least the ones I kill end up that way. Not all of them. Sometimes I get lucky and they'll die in a great spot. But, um, you know, if you're by yourself, especially if you're by yourself, it's, it's a lot of work. There's just no way around it. No matter what method you use, a lot of guys use gutless. A lot of guys gut. I do both. It de- it depends on the situation, where I'm at, how far it is to the truck. In an ideal situation for me, I would prefer to gut that thing and quarter it 
especially when I'm by myself, it's just easier to handle those big bulls and kind of slide them around and jockey them into position to make the cuts if the guts are out of them. Um, uh, there's, you know, some people might disagree with that, but that's fine. Um, gutless, I've used a ton as well, and I've used the gutless method when the bull is in such a nasty place, I can't budge them. So I just got to like start taking it apart chunk by chunk. Usually the top side comes off first. So, you know, I'll skin the top, the top half of the animal off. I'll pull the back straps out or one of the backs, you know, the up, the upside back strap. I'll pop the hind quarter off at the ball joint. I'll pull that front shoulder off. I'll take the neck meat off that way you got a lot less weight to jockey around and you might be able to move it around and get it out from underneath the blowdown or wherever it happens to be in this little stump hole or wherever it died. And then just roll it, try to flop it over the best you can and then do the same thing on the, uh, on the opposite side. So if I can get the quarters off with the bone in them, I prefer that the, uh, I like to hang them up. I'll, I'll, I'll take a few minutes and I'll make a little makeshift game pole between two trees. Sometimes if you're in the desert or you're in a place where it's just sagebrush or, or juniper or something like that, you might not have the option, but you can still hang them up and tie them to a limb, a tree limb or something. Then I like to get them up off the ground. I like to get them into the shade. I like to get air flowing around them and I like getting them cooled off as soon as possible. Um, if you bone them out right away and just drop the big chunks of meat in the bottom of a game bag and throw some more meat on it, you just tend to get a giant ball of meat that never really dries out, never really airs out and cools off properly. So I, tr- I like, if I can get away with it, I'll, I'll pull the quarters off and I'll hang them on a meat pole and I'll let them cool off overnight or at least for several hours if possible before I bone them. But if I'm going to leave them on the bone, I'll, I'll, I'll make a little slit and I'll open the meat up to the bone. A butcher friend of mine showed me that years and years ago. Um, he's like, you know, that, that bone is really dense and it holds a lot of heat. And it's right in the middle, surrounded, insulated with all this meat. You need to get it exposed to the air. So just make a little slit down to that bone. And then you can just kind of pry it open. And, and expose that a part of that bone to some air to get that heat coming out. Mm-hmm. Um, and a good rule of thumb for me is an elk's going to start, it's going to continue to cool off for about 12 to 18 hours, depending on the time that you kill it. So you kill it in the morning it's even if it's going to get warmer in the day, that elk is still going to cool off because you know, the internal body temperature on a bull is like 101 degree. So as soon as you kill him, he's going to start cooling off. Even if it's 80 degrees off, it's still cool. I mean, it's still going to cool to 80 degrees. It's going to cool to the, or equalize to the ambient air temperature. So if it does get to 80, it's going to take a while for that meat to cool to 80. Then by the time it does hit 80, it's going to, not be 80 anymore. You know what I mean? It's going to be starting to get into the evening cycle. And then you got the night cycle and you know, in the mountains, a lot of times the temperatures drop down into the forties, maybe late thirties at night. And eventually that thing's going to cool off 
down to, you know, 38, 40 degrees, 45 degrees, then you're good to go. Then I, once it reaches maximum coolness, I try to make sure I protect it and keep it as cool as possible while I get it out of the mountains. So if that means bumping it down to a creek where it's usually five or 10 degrees cooler in the middle of the day, right on a creek channel, I'll, I'll stack some sticks over the top of a little creek or set it right in the shade right next to the water where it's as cool as possible. And I got, usually I got, you know, up probably up to 48 hours to get it out. So, that, you know, once you kill one, the, the clock's ticking, but if it's, if it's a normal fall day, you've got, you've got several days to get it out. Okay. If you take the right precautions to cool the meat off, keep it clean, keep it dry, keep the insects off of it. Those are the big, the big things. Um, use a quality game bag. Um, I've always said, like, I've seen, I've seen dudes driving $50,000 trucks and they have a, a, you know, a $3 game bag. Mm -hmm. Like, come on, (laughs) you could spend a little more on a game bag, (laughs) spend the, spend the 50 bucks and get a tag bag or a, or a caribou or, you know, black Ovis or whatever. There's a lot of high quality game bags out there and you can reuse them and, they work better than those, you know, those 50 cent cheesecloth things that some people use. Yeah. I think the ones that I use are the Alaskan game bags. I, I've used yeah, them. Yeah, those are great. Yeah, I used them for a couple whitetails. And they're the elk ones, so they were huge on whitetails. But afterwards, I just put them in a sink and I was able to clean them out. And, and they're like new again. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, if you if you buy decent game bags, you can use them year after year. I I mean I I want to say I have put at least four or five bulls in a set of caribou game bags. And the only reason I'm not putting more bulls in them is because I ended up giving some meat away and I never got my game bags back. <laughs> so I bought. I think I had some some tag bags. Um, they're they're made in Alaska, but they're kind of that synthetic, fairly breathable tough you know like a kind of a synthetic bag that are washable reusable and i've uh i've put a lot of critters in those as well okay so So when yeah so boning oh go ahead no i was just gonna say when you so when you take them off you're taking the quarters off you're putting them in the game bags right away to hang them yeah a lot of times uh yeah so i'll pop a quarter off and i will if i'm by myself I'll just kind of roll the, the the bag down, kind of like a condom. Yep. And get the tip of the get the tip of the <laughs> the quarter in there, and then uh, roll it up. And then I can then I'll pack it over to my meat pole and suspend it off my meat pole, and just let it hang and and blow in the breeze for as long as possible. And you know the reason I like to keep them on the bone as long as possible is is that I feel that my meat comes out a little more tender if it ages just a little bit on the bone because it keeps those muscle groups stretched out from like tendon to tendon. If if you cut it off the bone, it just, it kind of all shrivels up right away mm-hmm. and it just becomes a little more tougher and a little chewier, more rubbier. I think I just, I think boned out meat. I don't know. This is just my, it, and my, my opinion and just what I've noticed and I could be wrong. Maybe I'm just 
I don't know, maybe I'm just imagining it, but it seems like when I bone out even younger bulls, they, they're a little more chewy, chewier than I think they should be. Um, but if they, if they go through rigor, the rigor process on the bone, then bone it, it they seem to be a little better. Okay. So I remember, rigor sets in. I don't remember how long it takes for it to go through that rigor. So, um, as long as rigor sets in and, and it's a while after that, then you can, if you bone it out then, then it tends to not be as chewy Interesting. and to be a little more, yeah, a little more tender. Okay. So I, and if I'm close to the truck, you know, if it's like a two mile pack or something, I I'll throw a quarter in with the bone in it. They just ride better. They, they just, uh, they don't ball up. You don't have a giant ball of meat kind of trying to slide out of your load shelf or trying to slide into the bottom of your pack. However, you're carrying your meat out mm-hmm. the quarters. Just it's, it's more compact. It, it stretches the, the center of gravity, you know, it gets it closer to your back and it, and it moves it sort of up your spine kind of and close to your spine. Um, it just keeps the, the load riding a little closer to your, your backbone and it carries better. I think. Okay. That makes sense. Yep. No, that, that definitely makes sense. But, uh, and the, I, I want to, I want to say if you take a leg bone out, you're only losing like maybe five pounds a load, five to eight pounds, five to seven. I think I've weighed a few leg bones and I want to say they're about five to seven pounds, depending on the size of the bull. So and, I don't know. It's not to me, to me, it's like, it's not that big of a deal if it's a shorter trip. And with, so like if you're taking it, say you pack it out and you're with a bunch of guys and you have other tags to fill. So you're taking it out and you're going to go to a butcher shop or, you know, something along those lines. They, if you're going to have them cut up the meat, say you killed it early in the trip, then I'm from the ones I've talked to, they prefer to have it on the bone. Is that correct? A lot of them do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, you know, the, uh, yeah, so they, they can age it a little bit longer too, when it is on the bone. So as soon as you start making all those cuts, you're, you're creating more surface area that bacteria can start to grow on. So they can't, they can't dry age them as long when they're boned out. Um, they just tend to get a little more slimy faster for whatever reason, just, you know, bacteria exposure. To, to the surface of the meat. So, um, if it's on the bone, yeah, it's, it's, there's less surface of the meats exposed to it and it can just, it can last longer in the cooler and it can age longer. And the longer it ages, the tender, more tender it's going to be. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, um, so, but it sounds like for the most part, like on your bivy hunts and stuff, you're eventually, do you eventually bone them out and, or like before you pack it out? Yeah, I do. Yep. Okay. Yeah, there's, yeah, just, I can, I, well, yeah, I do just because sometimes if it's a smaller bowl, I can fit more than just one quarter, you know, in my pack, if it's boned out, um, it's, I don't know, it's just, I can throw a couple extra chunks in and get it out and maybe three loads instead of four if I'm by myself Yeah. or, you know, two loads with a buddy, get it down to at least a trail or something. And then get the camp out plus a plus a big big load. Um, so it's just all you know scenario dependent. But boning, if the, if the last bull I killed way back in backpack hunting, it was it was a long ways. 
mean, it was like over, it was dang near 4,000 vertical feet out of there. Oh. And it was probably six, probably six miles, six and a half miles. So it was a, it was a long ways. Um, and carrying a bone that far, just, it's not, you know, it doesn't make any sense if you can just pop it out and leave it up there. Yeah, man, that's, that's, that sounds pretty rough. And so do you, do you like when you're loading? Okay. So now you either boned it out or you left the bone in either way. When you go to load your pack, do you like packs that have like an external meat shelf? So basically putting the meat between the frame and the bag, or do you like throwing it inside the bag? I prefer a load shelf and squeezing it between the bag and the frame. Mm-hmm. I've done both. This like the new Sitka packs. They have an internal load shelf, yep. meat shelf inside of the bag. And I've packed bloody elk quarters in that thing with all my camping gear around it. But I've, I've made sure that the, the meat is cooled off and then I'll slip it into a dry bag just so it's, it's a blood proof bag basically to hold the meat. Yep. And then I'll pack that way. Blood's not dripping down in all your camping gear. Some guys don't care. They'll, they'll just like shove their sleeping bag right around their, their bloody elk quarter. <laughs> but I, I prefer to keep my gear sent, <laughs> not covered in blood. Yeah. Um, so I, but I do prefer the load shelf with the bag that detaches from the frame. Um, it just it just tends to be easier to keep things clean. Yep. All your gear gear clean. So But you know, there are some there are some limitations with that too. A lot of times the compression straps that you use to you really have to just crank on some of those straps to hold your meat load in place, which can compress all your gear in your pack and makes it hard to get some of your gear out at times. Because you need to get something out of there as you're packing your your camp and your meat out if you need to get in to get your water filter or some food or whatever sometimes it can be a bugger mm-hmm. but it generally keeps everything fairly clean inside um but yeah I, I yeah i usually hunt with a pack that's i'm capable of hauling something out even when i'm just day hunting from the truck yeah so like it's a, the again the only experience that I have is packing out whitetails and I've used both. I had my Kafaru that I had the external frame in the load shelf and then the Sika Mountain Hauler sixty two hundred where I put it inside. And so I I agree with what you were saying. Again, this is a much smaller animal, so but it it seemed like the, the Sika one rode a little bit better, like it wasn't shifting around as much um in Uh there but uh it was kind of weird at first putting it inside the bag with your other stuff but what i did do is i had like sika has like a big roll top like dry bag that you can stuff all your stuff in so that's what i used and then i have like a couple other little like my kill kit and everything's in like a kafaru pull out so they're like a waterproof bag too and so that that helps but um and and but still you're inside of your bag is you know has a lot of blood in it and if you have a car wash or something close if you can get to something like that if you're going back into town then that's not a big deal those rinse off real easily um where like a cordura type bag like my kafaru was tougher to clean from it but it wasn't inside the bag either 
So, um, you right. know, there's trade offs with both. Yep. No, I agree. Yeah. That Sitco 6200, that mountain hauler 6200, it carries a big load really well. Mm-hmm. Um, it handles, uh, and that's an internal load sling. It's inside of the, the main bag. And I packed a quarter out, like a boned out quarter and a full camp out with that pack one year when it was first introduced. Actually, it was a little before it was introduced. I had got the good fortune of testing one out. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was a little, it was a little big and maybe a little clunky, like walking around with it empty because yep. the frames are kind of wide. It's kind of wide Yep. and it's a little tall. It's a little tall on me. I mean, it's like a 26 inch frame, I think, but uh, man, when you throw a giant load in there, it, it is really stable and it handles it really well and it's comfortable. Yeah. Um, and, and I can say the same thing is about the mountain hauler 4,000. It's a little smaller version. The frame isn't as wide, so it's not, it doesn't feel as clunky when you're walking around with it in day mode, but it handles uh, a fairly sizable load as well in that internal load shelf. I don't know if you'd get a full camp in that thing with an elk quarter, mm-hmm. just because the internal volume's not there, but it, uh, you can get quite a bit of gear in there. I used that in Utah last year. Okay. And, um, I, I liked it. Yeah. Yeah. And I would, I would recommend that pack to people who are doing like, you know, three, four, five day backpack trips. I'd use that pack over the 6,200. Yeah. Given the option. And that's what I, I got the 4,000 this year and I like the pocket layouts better on it and it definitely compressed a little bit better for day mode, but the pockets and being able to have that U zip to get into the whole inner you know, inside of the pack without going in through the top. I thought that was really a nice change because that's what I loved about my Kafaru was it zipped right down the center. I had the reckoning pack and I was able to access everything where this still has that, those external. I just like the pocket layouts a little better on the 4,000. Yes, I totally agree. Uh, Adding that zipper was, was key. I like the external pockets for organization I do like the the top lid on the 6200 a little better. Mm-hmm. I like that split pocket, um, but whatever. That's kind of personal preference. But yeah, it's uh, it's a great pack. Yeah, um, I'm you know it's it's great. I use use that a fair bit, and I use a bunch of. Uh, I've never I ha- I used to own a Kafaru. I'm not super familiar with them. They're newer models, but I had one of their earlier models, and it was great. But, you know, I do a lot of pack testing for rock slides, so I end up with packs kind of rotating in and out of my house pretty frequently. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, but I've never, I've never really gotten a hold of any Kafaru stuff for testing. Yeah. Um, there's other, there's other rock slide riders that are, that are, um, got, you know, better rocks or better Kafaru connections, but, um, you know, Stone Glacier, MR, Sitka, um, seek outside. I got a seek outside pack. I'm just finishing a review on right now. Okay. Um, so yeah, there's a ton of good packs out there. There's a lot of good equipment for people wanting to go elk hunting, backcountry elk hunting. Yep. It's like the golden years. Yeah. There's definitely a lot of good gear. I mean, I, I've, 
uh, just, you know, mess around with some different packs. And I, I've liked a lot of them. I love my Kafaru. It's a little heavier than I would like. I mean, I was running the tactical frame, which is one of their heavier ones. I got it so I, for tree stand hauling a lot of times it stayed stiffer. Um, but then like the, the newer Sika packs, the mountain haulers are, they're, you know, light years above their old bivy style packs. And, um, yeah, I've never used a stone glacier, but I've heard so many good things about those as well. Yep. So, yeah, it, they're, they're, uh, they're less pockets on, on the stone glacier. So if you're a pocket guy, it might not be the pack for you. Um, but they're lightweight, they're trim, they carry a heavy load pretty well. Um, you know, there's trade-offs to all of them. There's pluses and minuses, but, um, yeah, if you pick up any of those, any of the top of the line packs these days, you're going to, you're going to have a, a something that's super nice, super comfortable and capable of mm-hmm. doing pretty much whatever you want. So Josh, once you get the meat back to the truck, I guess this is the, the next section of the, the meat care. Oh yeah. That's, let's, that's where we were headed. That's yeah. Headed there. Yeah. So did I. And, and, and this is something that, <laughs> that is like, so I, I was talking about, um, with you trying to, you know, fit everything into my truck and going through that. And I'm looking at, you know, cooler selections and stuff. And basically it's, you know, what I have, I, you know, have a few different coolers I'm going to bring along, but how are you going about packing your, your meat into the coolers and, you know, the whole process of the truck? Yeah. So when I, when I go on a trip, so I, I put a, I've got a, I have the good fortune of having a giant Yeti Tundra 210 and that thing will swallow a full boned out bull elk, mature bull elk mm-hmm. and, and with ice in the bottom of it. So if you need to keep your meat cool back at camp and, you know, so, you know, two or three or four days or something like that, I wouldn't keep it more than four days, even in a cooler on ice if possible without getting it to a processor or processing it yourself. Um, those things are awesome. It, it, it's, it's unbelievable how good the coolers are these days they what i do is i bring a basically i have a duffel bag that i shove full of um synthetic ice like little ice packs you know little blue blue things you throw in your freezer and they freeze solid and supposedly they stay frozen longer but i'll fill a duffel bag just full of them zip it up throw it in a smaller cooler and then i'll throw that cooler inside of that yeti and that stuff will stay frozen in a brick in there for a week um, easily if you don't move or if you don't open the lid. So yeah. If if you are back in the backcountry for four or five days, you can come out and you know you've got ice right there in your Yeti. It's it's already pre cooled, and you can just pull that out. And I'll throw if my meat's cool, I will throw the ice blocks on the bottom. I'll maybe throw a piece of uh, cardboard down on top of it, and then I'll put the meat, just stack the meat on top of that. And then I might throw a couple ice blocks on top as well, close the lid, don't open it until you get to the processor. I mean, maybe crack it open in the cool of the morning or something just to feel your meat temperature and smell it, you know, make sure it still smells fresh and clean. Um, but, yeah, when I'm back at the truck, it goes into a big cooler. And I, last year when I was hunting, I was hunting – 
you know, kind of south of here quite a ways. I had a special permit in a different unit, and I killed a bull. Uh, I think it was on a Thursday, maybe. And no, it was a Friday. Friday, killed it, got it back to camp, hung it up, got it all cooled out. And then I was going to run them into the, the core, just the full quarters. I was going to run them into the, to the meat processor processor, which was like, I was like probably an hour away. And I drove in there and they're not open on, there's no cell service for that either. So I drove, I had to drive into town basically. And to find out that they're closed on Saturday and Sunday. So I had, I came back, hung them up back in camp, boned them out. And that's when I put them on, on some ice in my cooler and kept them there for another couple of days in that cooler. And then I got them back in on like Monday. Okay. Early. Is, Dropped them off. Oh yeah. They were great. It was cold and perfect. So if you took it, say, um, full quarters out and you weren't planning on boning it, taking it to the processor and you were going to drive straight into town, you know, assuming that they're open would, would you need to throw those in a cooler or can you kind of just throw them in your truck bed in the game bags? Um, it depends on the temperature. If it's like really hot out and the back of your truck is exposed to the sun and it's hot metal, I wouldn't throw them just in the back of my truck bed, Mm -hmm. you know, unless it was like a 15 minute or 20 minute drive down to where you're headed. But if you had to drive an hour, hour and a half no, I wouldn't throw them in the back of my truck. I just, you might be fine, but I just, wouldn't want to take that risk. Yeah. I mean, you spent all that effort to, uh, get that thing out of the mountains, keep it clean, keep the bugs off, get it cooled out. It's like, uh, just, I don't know. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to do it. Yeah. So I, would, I would try to throw it in a cooler or I would throw it, wrap it in an old sleeping bag. You know, if you don't, if you don't have a, a big fancy roto molded cooler, bring a couple old crappy sleeping bags and some cardboard boxes and lay them in those cardboard boxes and wrap them up in those sleeping bags. Cause that's, you know, it'll insulate it from the heat. And once you get those quarters cooled out, then it's easy to keep them cool. It's tough to change that temperature. Huh? Um, especially if you keep them insulated, yeah. so wrap them in some old sleeping bags and then, then drive them into town. You can always throw those things in the laundromat and clean them up and you're good to go. Yeah, I I would I would steer clear of just throwing them in the back of my truck unless I had some foam mats back there or foam sleeping pads or something like that. And in an old sleeping bag, I can throw over them or some old blankets, something to keep them somewhat insulated and keep the sun from beating down on them and keep that hot truck bed from making the meat kind of reheat and you have to worry about i guess dust too as i'm thinking about it you know even no matter how yeah. much sealed yeah. your truck bed is you always get dust in there i tried sealing it and doing all that and it still gets you know dust inside but so the, and the reason why i was asking with that is you know say you have a few smaller coolers if they were going to fit cause i'll have uh my buddy's bringing a yeti 110 and then i have an orion 85 and I think we're going to, and I'm borrowing another cooler. That's like a 120 quarts, a roto molded one, a, a bison cooler, I think. So it's, but uh, I just didn't know okay. if they'd all fit if like a full quarter, if you'd have to bone them out and just, just uh, trying to gauge that. I guess you could 
take some measurements and and figure that out ahead of time but yeah yeah i'm not 100 percent sure on the sizes of some of those but yeah it might you it might be you know it might be feasible might, yeah might have to jump and sit on one of the lids of one of them to get in the clothes but <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh yeah like so that's a good problem to have you'd figure it out at that point yeah no absolutely <laughs> cool yeah that's so that's uh that's kind of some of the you know again questions i had uh surrounding the the meat care and and that's something that I've never talked to anybody about, and I don't hear it a whole lot on podcasts talking about that. And like you said, that's what we're there for. That's what we're bringing out. You know, we're there obviously for the whole adventure and the the fun of elk hunting, but you know, that's that's what you're bringing home with you, right? No, absolutely. And yeah. I, I guess to take that one one more step, I don't want to keep you on here all night, Josh. But just as far as like with the head, if you were planning on doing like a a European mount or something like that with it. Say you're successful on a nice bull. Are you, uh, are you skinning out? Are you taking off the, the hide and everything from the head in the field and just bringing out the head with some, you know, light meat on it or how, how does that look? Yeah, I tend to, if I'm going to European something, I will skin the head out in the field. I'll try to pull off as much, especially if I'm in the backcountry and it's a fairly, you know, long pack out, I will skin as much as I can off of it. So I'll skin all the hide off. I will cut the bottom jaw off as well and the tongue, and that will eliminate a big part of the weight. And then of course I'll, I'll cut the eyeballs out. Um, most of the time, Jordan Gill, he's like, he told me, as a photographer, it just looks weird with eyeballs and a skinned out head. He said it looks a little more aesthetic with the eyeballs cut out. <laughs> as, as, as gruesome as that sounds, but I think he's right. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'll cut the eyeballs out and that's about all I do. Um, it, but if you're in a, you know, if you're in a chronic wasting disease area, there's certain regulations that you need to follow as well. I know, there's, it's kind of been a hot topic recently in certain states about chronic wasting disease. Um, like some places you're not allowed to transport certain parts of animals outside of that zone. That includes heads with brains inside of it mm -hmm. and spinal column. So, you know, if that's the case or any flesh on the skulls in some places, so sometimes you might have to uh, go to a pressure washer, car wash, and scramble the inside of that brain with a, with a screwdriver or something and then pressure wash it out of the skull kind of a deal. Um, you might have to find somebody that could quickly boil the meat off of it, that kind of thing. So I would say look into the local regulations where you're hunting and, and make sure that's not a, a requirement. That's a, that's a good beforehand. point. That's so you're, so, so you're kind of prepared for it. Yeah. If it does happen. Well, I, I know like I for whitetails, that's a big thing. Like when, you know, in Ohio and stuff like that, you have to, you know, look at those regulations for CWD areas and even some areas that aren't considered CWD areas still might have those regulations. Right. Yep. 
Yeah, I need to look closely in Wyoming because I do believe Wyoming has CWD in parts of the state, but I don't know if it's where I'm going. And I know they have some regulations um, surrounding that. Idaho, I don't think they have it. Pretty sure they don't. Mm-hmm. Montana has some areas. Um, actually, CWD was just found here in our whitetails this summer, this spring. I, didn't, I don't know if you heard that. No, I didn't. Oh, man. Just a kick to the stomach. Yeah. I found that out. Oh, it's, yeah, it's a bad deal. Um, and they found quite a few diseased animals. But anyway, um, so yeah, that's kind of why it's, you know, fresh and top of my mind. Just, you know, all the CWD talk around here and the regulations for the zone where it's found. And they're still trying to figure out how far it's spread, but there's some specific verbiage and, and regulations you need to follow if you kill any ungulates in those zones. So I think just people just need to be aware of that if possible. If yeah. it's there, take take precautions with it. Yeah, no, that's that's really good. And and so one thing that you said about like the the meat processor, one one step that I about being closed, one step that, that I took this year and uh I had, oh, I took last year too, but I created a list of areas that like say so I'll have like a meat processors that are in an area listed their hours, their address, their phone number. And, and then the same thing with grocery stores, place I can get extra coolers, you know, the whole bit. And I just keep, I print off a copy and keep it in my truck just for, you know, you know, reference for that. And it's not always going to be that way. They might say they're going to be open and not be, but it's that that's just another helpful step to take a little bit of stress off. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a great idea. That's a great tip. Mm-hmm. If you can find that stuff out ahead of time and have everything planned, you can you can adjust if if things kind of fall through. Yep. And yep, great idea. Well, cool, Josh. Is there anything else that we're missing there? I think we covered quite a bit of stuff. Yeah, we really did. We covered a lot of elk hunting stuff. I, it's. I don't know if people can tell, but I'm, I'm a little passionate about it. I love it. (laughs) It's my favorite time of the year. I, uh, I tend to spend a lot of time out there doing it and, you know, you get beat down. It's tiring. It's hard work, but man, it's fun too. So, um, one thing, I, I guess a little, one little last tip about boning meat, since it's still kind of in the back of my head, um, one of the best things I've found for boning meat is uh, a fillet knife. Throw in a, a really flexible bladed fillet knife and it makes your boning jobs way easier. You can pull like well, basically the whole muscle off in one chunk hmm. without just hacking away, hacking chunks off. Yeah. So, you know, if, if people go at it and try to like take as big a chunk of muscle off as possible, yeah, use a boning knife. It's way it makes it way easier. Uh, that's, um, that's a great tip, and and also, yeah. I mean, that's something. Do you carry that in your pack with you, or is that something you keep at the truck? No, it it goes in my pack. Okay. Yeah. So if I if I kill one and it 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 dictates that it needs, you know, to be boned out, then I, I have it with me. So yeah, it's one of my hunting knives that I carry with me everywhere I go. Hmm. So, really good tip. Yeah, yeah, and you know, strive for one chunk of meat 
per quarter. You can you can take the entire hind quarter off in one chunk of meat if you just kind of bone it right. So, and the front shoulder is the same thing. Just make one one incision on one part of the blade, and then you can just wrap it around. So, I guess that's that's a goal for people to strive for is just try to keep the muscle groups as large and as intact as possible. Because if you are taking it to a processor, he doesn't have to try to guess what what muscle group he's looking at yeah. and what kind of cut to make out of it. So if it's like a big ham with just the bone out of it, he knows, oh, these are all going to be rounds. But if it's a ham that's cut into five pieces, you're like, what is this? Yeah. I'm not sure. Roast. He's getting a roast. Yep. And then <laughs> and then he's going to look at you and maybe, oh, there's an upcharge here. That's not what you said. Well, that's, that's what you get. <laughs> right. Yep. Uh, anyway, but, yeah, that was sort of kind of the, the tail end of my thoughts on meat care. Cool. All right, Josh. Yeah. Well, so that's that's awesome. I'm I'm pumped to see how your uh, your trips go with you know Montana around home and everything, and then down in Wyoming this year. So I I think it's uh, I think it's gonna be a good year. Yeah, and likewise, I'm excited to uh, I'm excited for you that you're coming out to Idaho. I'll be uh, I'll be looking for some some Insta stories from you. Yeah, at and- some point. Yeah, whenever we have service and everything, I'll I'll definitely send you a, t- a text with a, with a photo there. Heck yeah! Cool. Yeah, likewise, I'll do the same. I'll keep you kind of in the loop as, if possible on how things are going. So yeah, especially the picture will be some bit some big dead bulls. Yeah, especially when there. it's like seven days in, and you know my my uh, you know emotions are you know all over the place, and you send me a picture of a dead bull that'll make me you know get going again. <laughs> right on yeah 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 absolutely yeah so it sounds like we're going to be you know adjacent states yeah not too far away from one another so yeah well good luck to you man i appreciate you having me on again yeah yeah josh where can we i was just gonna say where can people find some more of your stuff at and uh you know if they want to look into some of your gear reviews and and everything else and your instagram handle Oh yeah, so I guess people can find me on Rockslide. If you jump on, get in the forums, you can look me up. My user handle's just Josh Boyd. Um, you can, I don't, yeah, you could probably look me up in the on the homepage. You can find my articles that I've written on there: gear reviews from tents to rifles to backpacks. Um, and then also people can find me in the social media world on Instagram. Uh, my handle is just Josh underscore Boyd underscore MT as in Montana. And I try to keep, I try to keep that page not, I don't post a ton of stuff, but I'll, I try to keep, you know, a, re- a relevant post every couple of weeks if possible on kind of what I'm doing, what I'm, what I find interesting and just some, awesome scenery and what excites me visually so yeah people can check me out there cool man well hey again thank you so much for coming on the the podcast again i'm i'm excited to catch up with you after the after our season's end and we have some stories to tell yes yeah (laughs) probably see each other at at ata i'm guessing yep that'll probably be yeah that you're exactly right oh man right on well Anyways, Josh, again, good talking to you, and uh, you take care. All right. You too, Bill.
Thanks so much for listening to this episode of East Meets West Hunt with your host, Bo Martonic. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit eastmeetswesthunt.com, Facebook at East Meets West Outdoors, and Instagram at East Meets West Hunt. If you enjoyed today's episode, please review and subscribe, and we'll catch you next time.